0: Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedman. So, since uh, Sandra brought it up, let's talk about it just a minute. This week, uh, there was a Supreme Court case that went before the Supreme Court, and it's Dobbs versus the Jackson Health Clinic here, which is the uh, abortion clinic of, of Jackson, the only one in Mississippi. And as you know, we've had people in this. Congregation that have been out there for years, and frankly, some have been out there for decades. Uh, we've got two that I know about, and maybe more, maybe three or four of us here, but that have been out there for four decades. Now, can you believe that? Been out in front of a clinic, maybe not that one, because we used to have more, and they shut down one by one as, as uh, people were faithful to go out there. I feel like such a beginner. I mean, uh, Dayspring's been out there a couple decades now. But there have been some people here that have been there 38 to 40 years. Uh, I'm thinking Esther Mann, we have celebrated here. We've given her the highest award that can be given uh, through Dayspring Community Church uh, as a servant award for the community. We have celebrated her, but she's been out there for years, decades. And so has David Lane and Janice have been out there. And we appreciate you all and what Jesus has done. I got to tell you, on that morning... I decided that I wanted to be counted amongst the faithful. And I didn't know who all would be out there. I know there'd be some people that were trying to be loud so people could see them be loud. Uh, I knew there'd be some people there that were, you know, just kind of wanting to take the pictures and people that uh, were going to be part of the media. All I knew was I wanted to be out there the morning of the case going before the Supreme Court so I could stand with David and Doug Lane. Who had been out there for 38 years. And I just wanted, honestly, to have a picture taken with them. I'll just say, not just for me, didn't post it anywhere. I'll just say, here, I love these two guys, and I'm just honored that uh, that kind of faithfulness. Yeah. So, but plenty of people have been faithful through this congregation, and thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, now, having said that, uh, my understanding is I was told by someone that thinks they're in the know that the next day they actually get together in a room in the Supreme Court building and decide what we're going to do here. I mean, how are going to vote here? And who's going to write the things up? And so uh, we'll probably know at the latest in June what they actually have said about this. And it could be monumental what they do. On the other hand, it might not be. All I know is, regardless of what they do, we know what we're supposed to do. All right? We're supposed to remain faithful, to do whatever we can to reach out to women in crises and to reach out so that babies might know life. And uh, we do that both before they get out of the womb and after they get out of the womb. We want to be a pro life church on both ends. Amen? So, Jesus, we lift this up to you. Dayspring has always said, we fast on Wednesdays Wednesdays, and Fridays. Lord, could you make us faithful to continue to fast at least one meal on Wednesday and or on Friday to say, we lift this Supreme Court case up to you. You can do whatever you want to do. We ask that you will do something momentous or something good. Arise, O Lord. The psalmist says it over and over again. Arise, O Lord. Can you awaken, O my God, to this issue for us? And I'm just praying it, Lord Jesus. We might not deserve it. We probably don't deserve it. But Lord Jesus, could you come to our rescue? Nonetheless, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Isaac Watts wrote this incredible hymn based on Psalm 98. And we're going to talk about five opportunities today that arises out of this passage. And the first opportunity is the opportunity for us, for others, that this hymn is substantially about, hey, this isn't about you. Boy, it's a great, it's a great moment in a person's life when he begins to recognize this whole thing called life isn't about me. Now, some of us never get there. We think it's about us to the day we die. It's not about you. This whole thing called the movement of God, Christianity is not about you, not primarily. It's about what God wants to do through you to the peoples of the world. So he wants to recognize, yeah, you're important to the cause, but you're important because I want to not only just redeem you, but a hundred people through you. I not only want to do things through you, but I want to move through you into that people group over yonder. Now, we're going to talk about people groups just a minute, but this is an incredibly important thing we're talking about. Catherine Booth was, uh, some say, the more talented partner of the William and Catherine Booth team that started the Salvation Army. And one of the things she did every night as they uh, raised this extraordinary family of theirs is when she tucked her children to bed at night, she would cup their little faces and say, sweetheart, you have not been sent here for yourself. You have been sent for others. The world is waiting for you. Wow. And so I just decided when I learned about that, that's what every Friedman kid would hear when I put them to bed. And when they were infants, I did just that. Cup their little face prayed this prayer, and then we'd pray prayers like that over them to say, this isn't about us, this isn't about our well-being, this isn't about how we could grow up to be uh, well-adjusted, responsible adults, but this is about how we could pour ourselves out for others. That's what Gen- Abraham's call in Genesis 12 was all about. It wasn't about him. God said, I'm going to choose Abram and his family, and they're going to start a nation. And from this nation, all other nations of the world would be blessed. So his plan was to take this guy and his family and say, I'm going to bless the world with you all. That's the plan. That's Genesis 12. That's what this whole thing's about. And Isaac Watts, when he writes this hymn, figures that out. He says, hey, this seems to be what this hymn's about. Joy to the world, sing a new song to the Lord. But particularly these phrases we see here. And if you look there, uh, this incredible passage here where it says, and I'm just going to say, shout joyfully to the Lord, verse 4, all the earth. Well, how's all the earth going to shout joyfully? If they don't know, they're supposed to shout joyfully. Somebody's going to tell them, this is your life. You're supposed to shout You're supposed to have joy. Why? Because Yahweh, the Lord God, Father, Son, and Spirit, eventually they'd be able to say, wants you to have a life that shouts for Him. Who's going to tell them? Who's going to tell them they need to be shouters? (laughs) There used to be something called the shouting Methodists. It was a congregation that was a whole lot louder than this one, I can tell you right. And they would shout during the middle. In fact, when I got, I knew some shouting Methodists. I got to Wesley Biblical Seminary and met the first shouting methods I ever knew, David and Doug Lane. They were just, they would shout in the middle of things, woo, woo. If that don't ring your bell, your clapper's dead. I thought, who who says stuff like that during the middle of a sermon? I mean, the guy's waxing eloquent, woo. Yeah, I'm thinking who are, who are these guys? Well, one of those nut guys are right there. I mean, that's what they would do. You don't do it anymore, man. Come on. No, oh, come on. No, oh, come on. So I'm shouting people. Who's, who, who was it that told David, you need to be a shouter? Someone invited him to Jesus Christ. Someone invited you to Jesus Christ. The whole point is you're supposed to invite others to Jesus Christ. Now, this is what Isaac Watts came up with. Some of you didn't get here early enough to hear these verses. So I'm going to do them for you. To our almighty maker God. I won't sing it for you. (laughs) To our almighty maker God, new honors be addressed. His great salvation shines abroad and makes the nations blessed. Second verse. He spake the word to Abraham first. His truth fulfills the grace. The Gentiles, that means everybody that's not us. Everybody's not a Jew. Everybody's not part of Abraham's family. The Gentiles make his name their trust and learn his righteousness. Next verse. Let the whole earth his love proclaim. Not just us. Not just us that are in the holy land. Not just us, but the whole earth. You see, whenever you see that, you think that's not that big a thing. Ever, whenever you see it in scripture, it's a huge thing. Whenever it says nations or peoples, this it, nations or peoples means people outside of us. That's who we exist for. That's why we are a thing. That's why we are a people. We exist for them. Dayspring, this isn't about Dayspring. It's about the we're supposed to exist for hurting people outside of this congregation. We exist for those who don't know outside of this congregation. We exist for people that are hurting and lost and lonely outside of this congregation. I'm going to tell you uh, one point. I forget the name of the book. But I think it was the seven nations of North America. And talk about the nations. Basically, you can imagine the deep south. We were a nation unto our own. But there was a West Coast, there was an East Coast, there was the way they do things up North. There were seven of these nations of North America. I thought, wow, that's pretty true. I mean, we don't think the same here as they think out, same place like New York. New York doesn't think the same thing as they're thinking out in California. And and on it goes. I, I began thinking this. Do you suppose you could write a book on the five nations of the metro area of Jackson? And you know, and I know you could. I mean, we got political differences in this, uh, in this metro area. Political differences. There are different races. There are different ways of thinking, different ways of handling money. I mean, the whole nine yards, it's a different deal. In some ways, we're all the same. In other ways, we are as a diverse group of people as we can be. And that's what people groups means. That's what nations mean. It means crossing the lines that may be uncomfortable, in order that someone else might know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Are you crazy enough to cross the line? And that's what this passage is all about, is joy of the world, the Lord has come, and therefore we recognize we got to get out and get to people who don't know that He has come, that they might know Jesus. I used to say this, one of the most horrific phrases in Latin is, Ubi est mia which is basically, where's mine? And Jesus comes along and says, no, that's not us. We are an Ubi-esque Mia culture, not in Christianity, not the early church. What we are is, hey, let's empty ourselves and go find some feet to wash. And inasmuch as we become that, we become very much the other kind of people that the Lord wants us to be. So the first opportunity is the opportunity of others. The second opportunity goes like this. The opportunity of loud. <clears throat> you might well say, well, that's, that, that's kind of a silly one to throw in, particularly given the import of the first one. But the opportunity of loud. Shout joyfully. Shout joyfully, the Lord, all of the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Now, I did not get a chance to talk to Miss Esther before she walked in, but Somewhere in her life, she all of a sudden became disgruntled with the fact that someone went to church and noticed how boring everyone was and says, I don't want anything to do with it. She says, at that point, I decided, hey, when I worship, people are going to see it. People are going to hear it. I want to be someone that's boisterous in my worship. Now, we talked about this last week. Remember the guy that went to an Indian house church? And he was of another religion. But when he heard people singing, joyfully about this God who loved them and could change them. He got excited. Just the worship alone, the singing alone turned on. He said, forget the preaching. I don't even know what they preached on. I know what they were singing about and I wanted in on what they were. And he says, Boy, these people were singing about a God that loved us and cared for us and could change us and could send us out into a world that's lost and lonely. Whatever that God is, I want Him in my heart. And y'all, that's what our worship ought to be out about. Loud enough, boisterous enough, exciting enough. I was covering this the other day with a... I've got many discipleship groups that meet all week long. and In large measure, because we've got the largest student body we've ever had at Wesley Biblical Seminary. And, And all of them need to stop ship groups. And so I've just decided, let me get in the middle of it and let's have these groups. And So I've actually got 10 of them this semester. I mean, I go from one group to the next all day long, it seems like. But having said that, it's a great, wonderful thing. I had one of the guys say this. And we were going over this passage. It was weeks ago. He says, you know, Richard Foster is one of the textbooks we have for the class. He's a Quaker guy, so. But Richard Foster says that there's the discipline of silence and the discipline of solitude. He takes a whole chapter, and it's a beautiful chapter. We ought to know the discipline of silence. We ought to know the discipline of solitude. But this guy said this, Seems to me when you read the Psalms, the, the discipline that shouts even louder than silence is the discipline of loud." Because over and over again, it talks about this guy. Clap your hands, shout for joy, raise your voices. Now, y'all, I think there are appropriate times and not appropriate times. You get that and I get it too. But y'all, people ought to see his worship and say, I want that. People I see as worship and say, whoa, what's going on here? That is why, for whatever it's worth, the most, the people that have the most expressive worship today in our culture is the church of Jesus Christ that is growing fastest around the world. They've got a culture that gets excited about the Lord. And if you're not excited about the Lord, I've got to ask you, why not? The word enthusiasm is interesting to me. It's N plus theos. Theos, you know, is God. In is in. So the very word means, and basically when they put it down, it was the gods that are in us. We're enthusiastic because we have gods in us. Now, we could say, well, let's work with that theologically. Because we don't believe in gods. We believe in the one true God. But I still like the idea, when we get God in us, we can't help but be enthusiastic and excited about what he's doing in me. And what He wants to do through me, and therefore my worship ought to be something more than simply dour and boring. And you know, I don't do I don't don't do certain things (laughs) around. Y'all have read the Psalms. Some of it comes at us in imperatives, like shout, clap, raise your voices. And if we don't ever do it, guess what? No one wants to be a part of it. I'm just telling you, there is the opportunity here for loudness. Now, I'm going to tell you, there's an opportunity for quietness, too. I'm not going to tell you otherwise. An opportunity for silence and for solitude. But a good bit of our life together ought to be, wow, let's celebrate. So, the opportunity of others. The opportunity of loud. And now, the opportunity of joy. Three times in these passages. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Be cheerful. Sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. And on it goes, shout, last line of uh, six, shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. We ought to be a joyful people. We ought to be a joyful people. You say, I don't know. I don't know if I have anything to be joyful about. Well, I think we need to recognize we have many things to be joyful about. And some of our lives right now are pretty sticky and pretty hard. I don't doubt that for a minute. Even in the midst of hardship, God has an antidote to the hardship. It's joy. But you've got to recognize it for what it is. I uh, I appreciate Chuck Colson, one of the guys I would call one of my heroes in the last 30 years of the church. But he talks about a university psychology experiment where they went in and had the first group practice daily exercises like writing in a gratitude journal. Let's look down and see all the things that we ought to be grateful for. And those people, after about 30 days of doing that, they noted they had higher levels of alertness, of determination, of optimism, of energy, of less depression and less stress. They were just cooking with oil as far as their whole life because they noted every day what I ought to be thankful for. Now, some of you will remember this. I, let me re-suggest it to you. I uh, was telling you what I do in my journal. Every morning I wake up and I wrote down three things. By the way, I've upped it to five because of what I'm about ready to tell you, which was kind of humbling. Anyway, I said I, I was telling my guys that met at my house at 6 a.m., I said, guys. Let me tell you, a great spiritual discipline. Every morning I wake up and I write down three things I'm grateful for. And the dude sitting next to me says, yeah, well, when we were in prison, before we ever got off our knees, we would thank God for 20 things. I thought, that's a little bit better than three, isn't it? <laughs> he says, yeah, because it's a little hot here, buddy. It's the, the mic. Uh, that it would be very true, y'all. It's a, gr- it's a great thing to do to say, let me count my blessings and thereby find joy. Because when you're going through a tough time, you gotta, you got to know there's a lot of good things happening, even during the tough time. If you concentrate on the tough time, it's going to bury you. If you can concentrate on all the blessings and incredible things God is doing and wants to do in your life, guess what? You've got to find your way out of the tough time. I can just tell you that's the way it's going to be. By the way, one of the things in this experiment, uh, they found out that they had had the uh, first group, the control group, and then the group that uh, wrote down all the bad things that happened every day. Now you think, what nutcase would do that? Me, because I listen to talk radio all day long, and I note the things that are going bad with the country. I think everything stinks, and we're we're going right down to the pits of hell, and it's over. And I know that because this guy says so, this guy says so, this guy says so, this guy says so. so. Guys, talk radio will bury you. I know I used to do a program that tried to bury people. Here's all the bad things happening. Be on high alert. Instead of saying, whoa, look what the Lord's blessing with. Now, that doesn't mean, hey, Put a big blindfold over your eyes and never know the bad things that are happening around you. But if you concentrate on those, Mm -hmm. it's very not as under the Lord. Mm -hmm. It's very (laughs) burying, can I say. It's going to kill you. And that's why I've decided, all right, I don't mind listening to some of that, even a little bit every day, five minutes, ten minutes. I don't mind reading the newspaper a little bit every day. By the way, they still make those, right? Newspaper. <laughs> I, I check mine online, but whatever it works. By the way, I miss the old newspaper, whatever it's worth. But I, I, I think it's okay to pay attention some, but do I want to dedicate hours of my day every day to that stuff? Recognizing I'm paying more attention to the Rush Limbaugh's and the Sean Hannity's than I am to the Word of God? Mm. Or to the Matt Freedemans. Because I was right in there with him. Y'all, you've got so many great things to be thankful for. So many great things Jesus is on the move with. Concentrate on those things. And what you're going to find is, if you really care about the bad things, the best thing to do is to be on the march with the good things. The best thing to do is say, let me actually go out to the abortion clinic. Let me actually go to the nursing home. Let me actually go out to a place like John Hopkins and invest some of my time in my life. Let me actually go out to a prison. If you want to be fighting the darkness, the best thing to do is not saying, whoa, it's dark. The best thing to do is, I'm a light. Let me be light. Affirming the darkness doesn't defeat the dark. Being a light defeats the dark. And so, y'all, let's just remember we have an opportunity here. Let's not miss it. Then there's this, the opportunity of instrumentation. Look at verse 5. Sing praise of the Lord with the lyre in Austin, you have yet to bring a liar to church. I'm just saying, I love you, but there's some deficiencies here. Okay. With the lyre, and with the sound of melody and with trumpets when the sound of the horn, look at all the voice. First of all, sing praises. That's your voice. So your voice is an instrument, lyre, melody, trumpets, horn. Now, I think it's great to get a growing expertise in these things. But I think you also remember, my dad used to sit right here in church, and I would stand over here, and I'd listen to my dad raise his voice to the Lord and think, that's really bad, Dad. (laughs) But it created a lesson in me that says, that's what men do. We sing praises to the Lord, even if we can't sing. And so... By the way, anybody remember the couple that used to be here? Uh, someone can remind me of their name. I'd really appreciate that. We're trying to think of it on the way to church. That used to lead some music sometimes for us. And when they came, they came with instruments that you could grab. Remember this, Austin? Yeah, 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 you remember this. And, and they would throw down. Yeah, 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 you remember. Come on. They would throw out instruments. Remember this? And you could pick up an instrument. And they had about 20 or 30 of them there, so you couldn't like. And it was, it was like. As corny as it could be, really, tambourine and you know a little, ooh ooh ooh. I mean, kazoos. I mean, all kinds of fun things. And you think that's just dumb? I don't know. It was pretty cool. They say, here, here's some instruments. Come get them, kids. Would jump up there and grab one. And then I thought, well, what do kids have over me? And so I'd go grab a kazoo and just do a shout to the Lord with a kazoo. <laughs> It was as corny and as bad as it could be, and very appropriate for this psalm. Get an instrument and use it for Jesus. Get an instrument and lift it up to God. We all have instruments, we all have voices, and here it's voices, brass, and strings. But instruments are other kinds of things, and you know what I do too. They're positions in life. Some of your teachers, some of your businessmen, some of your laborers and medical professionals. That's an instrument. Some of us have influence, influence can be an instrument. Friends, relatives, associates, neighbors, power, prestige. All of us have money. That money is an instrument. It ought to be used for God, not for your own comfort. And so, how can I use my money for Him? How do we play these instruments for Him and for His worldwide movement? When we come to the Lord, that's what we begin asking. God has given me instruments. How can I play them for His glory? March 2014, there was a New York Times article that came out, and it reported something that's mind-blowing to me. Y'all ever heard of a Stradivarius? Yeah, violins, these incredible violins, where well, apparently... There's uh, about 600 of those that still exist that he made back in the early 18th century. <clears throat> However, there's only about 10 of his violas that still exist. And so they were talking about the most, the most expensive musical instrument in the world. And at that point, I'm sure it's more now. But in 2014, it was a Stradivari viola, which was estimated at $45 million dollars. I don't know how do you even carry that one down the street <laughs> I'd be scared to death and so this is an incredible instrument. by the way he made this viola during his very oh yeah, someone asked what makes it worth 45 million why 45 million how can anything be worth that much apparently he made it when he was making his best stuff that was from 1700 to 1720 so somewhere in there he made this viola and then there are only about 10 of them left so that, that, that that's pretty important And then this particular one was played by a guy named Peter Shidloff of the Amadeus Quartet. Mozart, Amadeus Quartet, and he was one of the most famous violists of the 20th century and played it for over 25 years. So what gave this instrument its worth? (laughs) Same thing that gives you your worth. Who made you? And who plays you? That would be Jesus Christ, the Father in heaven, through Jesus Christ, made us. Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, plays us. That's what makes you worth $45 million. Actually, a whole lot more than that. But the whole point is the opportunity of instrumentation is recognizing how valuable we are in the kingdom of God and acting like it. That's how important you are. And we recognize that and says, Lord, I know you've made me. Jesus today is playing me. And I want to give my life up totally and completely. My instrument that is, put your name in, Matt Friedemann. The instrument that is Matt Friedemann. And all that I have, I want you to play it. I give it all to you. Which brings up our last point. We have, first off, the opportunity of others, the opportunity of loud. The opportunity of joy, the opportunity of instrumentation, but then this, the opportunity of submission. Look, shout joyfully before the Lord, the King, the Savior. And by the way, Isaac Watts picks right up on it. These are important words. So he says, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nation's proof. If there is such a thing as a Lord and a King and a Savior, the strong presumption of these words is we're supposed to bow down and offer our instrumentation to Him. This seems a little silly, but I decided. You know, I'm not not sure what better demonstrates this, at least for me and my family. I'm a little bit of a control freak. I don't know anybody else here, kind of like that. You kind of want to keep things. Now, nowhere is this more shown than when I drive. If I'm in the car, I want to drive. Anybody else with me on this? I just can't let you drive. I'm sorry, you know, even if, you know, this isn't really my car and I just, can I drive? I just, you know, because <laughs> I can't relax because I can't give up control. John Ortberg is a famous author, as you know, and he, uh, he says, you know, there are two incredible moments in a man's life. There are lots lots of incredible moments, but this is be one of them. He says the two scariest moments, he might add. The first one was he had a little girl. And he grabs his little girl, and they're at the hospital. He puts her in the back in this seat, you know, and there's this precious little think, Oh my goodness. And he says, I'm just scared to death to drive her home. I'm scared. I'm scared because who knows what's going to happen. So he, now I think he's in LA. So he's going 35 miles an hour down the interstate. (laughs) With the lights flashing, like, boy, this is the most important thing in the entire world. He says, I was scared something might happen to this child. You know, children, you know, four or five pounds, six, seven pounds, eight, nine, ten, some of us pounds. But still, even at ten pounds, it's like, whoa, imagine the bad things that can happen. So he's scared to death. He says, that's the first scary day. Second scary day for me in this scenario is, here, sweetheart, You drive. (laughs) Oh, man, I can relate. That's just a fun day when you say, hey, here it is. And let me sit over here and you do it. You, and, and so what he says is everything about that is a scary thing for a control freak like Matt Friedman. All right. Because all of a sudden you're not in control. Now, he says, now, OK, that's the physical situation. Imagine this. Jesus You ever seen this? Um, Forgive me if you have this on your bumper, but you ever seen the dumb bumper sticker? Jesus is my co-pilot. He don't want anything to be co-about it, all right? But that's exactly how we treat him. We're driving because I'm the control freak here, Jesus. I'm not sure you know what you're doing. You sit over there. And by the way, when I need you, like we're running out of gas. Oh, Jesus, get us. Now, I know. I know. I see you. You've done just what I've done in these situations. Admit it. Oh, Jesus, just give me to. I I got these kids in back. My wife's going to say something. If I don't, I mean, Jesus, help me get to the station. Please, Jesus. Or something goes wrong. Flat tire. I've I've done this, by the way, with Louisiana. uh, I'm dumb as a rock. I don't know how cars work. I don't know what the lights mean. But apparently, when the light starts going way dim, and it keeps going down, you think, why is my light getting dimmer? I don't understand what's going on here. And then, all of a sudden, it kind of goes out. (laughs) And you're thinking, the lights are on, it's all gone, and I'm coasting down the road. You know something has gone wrong at this point, and you stop the car, and it goes clunk clunk, and you think, "Well, I know what to do in these situations. Let me just start the car, <laughs> click click," and you're thinking, "Uh-oh, I'm in trouble." It's 11 a.m. or 11 p.m. It's dark as it can be in some back road in Louisiana, and you're thinking, "I think I remember a story about a back road in Mississippi and the horrific things that was done to the man." whose alternator has now gone dead. I think I remember that story. And you're looking up and down the road and you're thinking, all right, I was in control just a moment ago, but now Jesus, you're in control now. I need help here. Jesus, help me. And sure enough, he did. Um, I'm just going to say, Jesus doesn't want to be a co-pilot. He doesn't want to be in that seat. The whole deal of the Christian life is giving up the keys to Jesus and let, letting him choose the direction, letting him lead the way. And yes, it's scary. I'm just going to tell you, one of my favorite books about the Sermon on the Mount is, why does Jesus make me nervous? You say, well, it doesn't make me nervous. Stop. That he probably doesn't have control if he doesn't make you nervous because he makes me plenty nervous. I'm thinking, for instance, I think I've all, all told you my story about choosing a wife Jesus is not from around here. I'm not sure he knows what he's doing here. I think I'm taking this one, Jesus. I remember the day of my sanctification was when he said, I want that choice, Matt, not you. I'm thinking, can we talk about this a little bit? I want her to act a certain way, look a certain way. I want her, you know, I want to want a certain way. And Jesus says, no, you don't get any way here, Matt. I get the choice, not you. And the day of my sanctification was that and two other issues. I gave it entirely up to him. Here's the keys of the car. I'm no longer driving. It's you. That is a great day in a person's life. That is called the opportunity of submission. And he gives you that opportunity today. Give it up. Let him have it. And if you're unwilling to let him have it, then you're not in the place he wants you to be this Christmas. He wants you to come to the place where you say, Lord, I'm not in control, but you are. It's not just that He rules a world with truth and grace. It's He rules me with truth and grace. It's not just He rules a world with truth and grace. It's that He rules my family with truth and grace. It's not just... He rules the world. Oh, I like this song, don't you? With truth and grace. No one said he has your church. He has everything about you. Now what's everything? You're not in charge of your life anymore. You're not in charge of your wallet anymore. You're not in charge of your vocational direction anymore. Ooh, now we're about ready to step on something. Everybody ready? You're not in charge of your recreational time anymore. You're not in charge of your possessions or whether you even have possessions anymore. You put Jesus in charge and you submit to the King of all the universe. You submit to the Lord of all creation. You submit to the Savior of your soul. But there's no saving your soul unless you say, let me get out of this card and just zip around to the other seat, Lord. Here, take it. I'm done. Yes, I'm done with me. Yes. Yes. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make us extraordinary this Advent season. But we'll know that extraordinariness is happening when we're giving up the control and submitting totally to you. Lord Jesus, help us to understand the opportunity of others, the opportunity of loud the opportunity of joy, the opportunity of instrumentation, and most of all, the opportunity of submission. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen Amen. and amen. God bless you, Dayspring. Thank you very much.